So last week, in Ezra chapter 7, more than halfway through the book of Ezra, we finally met Ezra. He's a skilled scribe. He's a priest in the line of Aaron, the first high priest. He's a man who knows the law. He knows the word of God inside and out, and he has set his heart to three things, to study the word, to do the word, and to teach the word. He's still living in Persia 80 years after the initial group of exiles has returned to Jerusalem and begun rebuilding the temple and and restarting worship there. And now he asks the king of Persia to send him with a second group, a second band of returnees to go back and continue the work because it's not done. You see, the book of Ezra is the story of God reestablishing his people in the covenant land. And it happens in kind of three phases. First, he has reestablished the temple. Second, he has reestablished the worship of the people. We've seen them offering now sacrifices, and they have celebrated festivals and feasts. And third, we see here now that he will reestablish his word in the midst of his people. Because without that, none of the other stuff means anything. You can have a great building and have great parties and follow all the rites and rituals. You can worship and you can lift up God. But if you're not doing it according to his word and you're not worshiping the God of Israel as he has revealed himself, they may as well not have even made that arduous four-month trip from Persia to Jerusalem. And we see in our passage today that reestablishing God's law, God's word in that old covenant setting, takes the form largely of reestablishing and renewing the sanctions of the law. See, as part of the blessings and curses that are laid out in the law of Moses, there are penalties, there are punishments associated with those who would break the law. And in order to enforce these, This king has given Ezra the authority to set up magistrates and judges over the people to implement these things and and to enforce this law in the province called Beyond the River, where Israel is now and where Jerusalem is situated. Now, these things were all, of course, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. The law of Christ, the law of, of God is fulfilled in Christ. The blessings and curses are fulfilled in Christ. All of it will be fulfilled in Christ, and we will talk about that a bit. But this morning, I mostly want to focus on how God went about reestablishing his word. How he did it. The how, not the what, not the when, not the where. Because I think it is incredibly relevant to us and our situation in the West today. How he did it, in a nutshell, is the same way he's been doing it. Throughout the book of Ezra... And into the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see that God will use heathen kings, polytheistic kings. Here he uses Artaxerxes I, the king of Persia, in order to send this group back and give them everything they need and jumpstart this reestablishing of his law. In in this passage we read, it's 28 verses. The first 26 of those are just the letter that he wrote, giving them the permission giving them the mandate to go, giving them access to the funds and all the things that they need. He's very good to the Jewish people here. What a guy. And we might read this and think, wow, he worships the same God they do. 
He is all over it. He is excited about the prospect of renewing and reestablishing God's word in this promised land. Now, I don't want to be the super cynical Calvinist here, but Artaxerxes was probably just trying to avoid unrest in his empire in the course of doing this and to curry favor with as many gods as possible, in this case, the God of Israel. Because as we've said, unlike the Canaanites or the Babylonians, the Persians did not want to upset any of the gods of the people they conquered. They wanted to make nice with them. They wanted to have a lot of friends in high places, including gods and rulers and everyone. And so the extreme generosity and the donations that are made here probably more reflect Artaxerxes' political cunning than his religious devotion. There's also the matter of serious unrest brewing in Egypt at the time. Egypt being kind of the edge of the Persian Empire and Israel being sort of a buffer between Egypt and the rest of the empire. And the idea was if we can keep them happy in Israel, the unrest won't spread. We can kind of cut it off, tie it off like a tourniquet. Ezra undoubtedly knew all of this. He was well aware of how the Persians operated. He was well aware of the history that they had with these, with these rulers and how they had treated the different peoples they had conquered. And yet, he knew that God, the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth, was ultimately behind this turn of events. And so he accepted it with thanks. After Artie's letter, I call Artaxerxes Artie's because it's quicker and it's hilarious, the last two verses of this chapter consist of Ezra praising God for the hand of the Lord being upon him. He gives the Lord credit for everything that has happened, and he gives no credit to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. He knows who is truly the king of kings. Now, Artaxerxes calls himself here the king of kings. That was one of the titles of the emperor of Persia. And, in fact, he was a king of kings. There were many kings that reported to him. But he himself is still under a higher authority. I think of when Jesus stands before Pilate. And Pilate says, how can you just stand there? Don't you realize I have the authority either to condemn you or set you free? And Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all if it had not been given to you by someone higher, meaning, of course, God the Father. And when Christ claims that title of King of Kings, he is not just the king of some kings and himself under authority. No, he is the king of all kings, including of Artaxerxes. And so knowing that his God sits on an infinitely higher throne, even than this so-called king of kings, Ezra doesn't just study the word and do the word and teach the word and wait. He acts as well. He's emboldened by the word he's studied and by the word that he has lived out and by the word that he has taught to others. And following in the footsteps of Daniel and Esther and others, Mordecai, for example, he steps out in faith and makes a bold request of the king. Here's what my God would have. Will you give it to us? And when the king grants it, he immediately attributes this to the hand of the Lord. Paul tells us the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4. What do you have that you did not receive? Answer, nothing. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Ezra will not let anyone boast in what God has done. He attributes this wonderful 
uh, development to the God who deserves the credit. For us today, believing that Jesus is the King of Kings, it gives us a similar bold faith. Not only through Christ can we boldly go to the throne of the King of heaven and earth, but we also then certainly can go to lesser kings and rulers and governors and people in authority with boldness. This is how Ezra is able to go before Artaxerxes. This is how Esther was able to go to Artaxerxes' dad, Xerxes. Weird names in this family, but at least they've got a theme. This is how Nehemiah, when we get to that book, will be able also to boldly lay his heart out before Artaxerxes and say, I need to go back and start building that wall. This is how Jesus could tell his followers, when you're dragged before kings and governors, don't worry about what you'll say. The Spirit will give you the words in the moment to say. And it's also how you and I could speak to unbelieving family members and co-workers and neighbors about our faith in Jesus Christ because faith banishes fear and understanding that all of it rests in the hand of the Lord not even in the hand of Artie the king of kings is key in Ezra's case this boldness pays off he's given everything he asks for he's given I mean how many baths of wine and oil can a guy want right he's just he's lousy with this stuff he even says you can have salt and I won't tell you how much it's like a blank check for salt all this stuff. And then on top of all these things that you read, he says, I'll give you tax-exempt status in your temple. They won't be able to charge tribute. No one will be able to charge taxes of, of the, the trumpeters, the, the singers, the, everybody, the whole enterprise. That's wild. Today we have churches that are tax-exempt. How often do you thank God for that? We ought to be thanking him for that regularly. What a gift. We don't deserve that. There's no real reason why the world should have the church's best interest in mind. And yet, by God's grace, that's the case. Someday, it likely won't be the case. And when that is the reality we live in, we'll still obey Ezra's commandment in verse 27 to bless the Lord for all of his many gifts. But right now, he's using an unlikely channel to give us this gift. And Artaxerxes himself was an unlikely channel as well. These kings going all the way back to Cyrus the Great, a very just king, a very wise king, but not a very good theologian. All of these Persian kings have been what we might call pragmatic religious pluralists. They want a little piece of every religion. They want to kind of mix them all together into a delicious religion frappe with all the gods and everything on their side working together. And yes, he gives Ezra everything he wants. He allows sacrifice. In fact, he commands sacrifice to take place. You might think, reading this, that, that Artaxerxes himself is a follower of Yahweh. And if he were, we could see how that might happen. His father is Xerxes, which means his stepmother is... Esther, right? That's something. And yet, we know that when he began to reign, he brought his biological mother, Queen Vashti, who had been sent into exile, back. And he had her ruling with him as queen mother. He's reconnecting with his heathen roots. He'll believe in the God of Israel, but also in pretty much any God anyone will dream up. Much like the Romans, the Greeks, he's collecting a pantheon. 
It's like Pokemon Go, but for deities, or, or like people who have that checklist of all the birds that they've seen in their backyard, only he's checking off all the gods that he has appeased. Still, perhaps he does have a soft spot for this God, the God of Israel, the God who is. If he knows his own history, he should. Not only what happened with his father Xerxes and that whole thing, but he would know about King Darius trying to suppress the worship of the God of Israel and how badly it went. He would know about Haman and how badly that whole thing went. In fact, Artaxerxes probably grew up calling Haman Uncle Haman and knowing him from childhood. That's an odd thought. So maybe there's even a particularly high view of this God, but still just a God among many gods. It's a pragmatic religious pluralism. And this is where God's working in Ezra 7 becomes so relevant for us today because we too are living in an age of pragmatic religious pluralism. And when I say religious pluralism, I don't mean religions coexisting together as the bumper sticker says. We Baptists love that and have from the beginning. In fact, we kind of invented it, at least the way we know it now. If you know your Baptist history, look at the history of our denomination which began in earnest in Providence, Rhode Island in 1636. And you will find there that we were coexisting when everyone else in the land was flogging each other and putting each other in the stocks over the smallest religious deviations or misdemeanors. We've always loved that. I don't mean that when I say religious pluralism. I also don't simply mean religious diversity. We had that early on at the very beginning of our Baptist movement in America. King Charles called this the lively experiment. What would happen if you put people of different stripes and even different faiths all together in one place and, whoa, they didn't try to kill or punish or hurt each other, but just loved each other and lived side by side as neighbors. Now, what I mean by religious pluralism here is the default view of our day that says two religions that make mutually exclusive claims meaning one must be wrong if the other is right, but rather we, we believe that both of them can be right at the same time, or ten religions, or all the religions. We're seeing a rise in religious pluralism today, and not even the kind we saw in Persia, but more the likes of what was in Rome, a sort of exclusive pluralism, which is obviously an oxymoron and self-defeating and foolish, and yet it's everywhere. Today's religious pluralism in the West functions like this. We will, we will value and protect and even endorse any religious belief except those which would say our way is the way and insist on some kind of exclusive truth claim. Only, only the religions that will, that will say we're on board with this pluralism thing will be endorsed and accepted. But then you start seeing that we're giving out exceptions to that as well, exemptions. I mean, Islam is every bit as exclusive as Christianity. They make uh, convicted truth claims, and they say, here we stand on this truth. We have the truth. Buddhism, even, denies that there is a God, an all-knowing and all-powerful God who will ever bring judgment, and yet that is lauded and held up and accepted in very many ways. This is not a great deal. Christianity winds up being the only religion, eventually, more and more, where the God is not allowed at the table because we will not agree to 
avoid knocking over the sacred cows. Increasingly, to be a Christian, a biblical Christian, is to open oneself up to all the stuff Jesus told us would happen, slander and charges and consequences of every kind. And where it's not the case now, it likely will be soon. And I don't mean to sound like a prophet of doom. We do see in the New Testament that, that trials and times of, of struggle and persecution even come in waves and come like birth pangs. Perhaps it will all go in the other direction and the pendulum will swing away. I don't know, but we need to be ready, as Jesus said, for anything, in season, out of season. And so when we look at this and go, increasingly, this is a bad deal for us. We cannot give in to the temptation to just grouse and complain and protest and be all angry about it. You can't do this to us. You can't do these things that Jesus promised you would do to us. To us? But here's the key that I see in Ezra 7. It's clear from this text that revival is possible in a setting like this. Because we watch it unfold. Where the once innumerable followers of the one true God are now whittled down to a small faithful remnant which is mocked by the inhabitants of the land and where few people, if any, outside of God's people think of this God, the God of Israel, as the only option. Not only is it possible for religion, or for revival rather, to come in this kind of religious pluralism, but God can use the very religious pluralism to our advantage to glorify his name and build up his church. He did it in Persia, he did it in Rome, and he can do it again. It makes perfect sense to me that he would use this guy who's unworthy to be his instrument, Artaxerxes, as his instrument. If God's going to use anybody, he's going to use someone who's unworthy to be his instrument. Cyrus and, and Xerxes and Artaxerxes and all these guys, in some sense, are even kind of foreshadowing Jesus, the Messiah. Not only is he called King of Kings, but he's presented as sort of a, a savior figure, a deliverer that God has raised up for their good, but he's not worthy of that mantle. See, God can use anyone. He uses Samson, a real dirtbag. He uses Nebuchadnezzar. He uses Artie here. He even has used me from time to time. And it works because he said when he made the covenant, I will be your God and you will be my people. And when it came to the division of that covenant and where it all rested, it was not even. He didn't say, here's your half and here's my half. Let's get it done. No, we, we think often of Passover as the most significant aspect of the Old Testament but I think pass between is just as important. Remember when God was making that covenant with Abraham initially. He had, the, 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 this is all standard covenant stuff for that world. He speaks to us in terms we understand. And it would have been normal if there were a stronger king, a suzerain, and a weaker king, a vassal, that they would make a covenant. And in doing it, the stronger king would have animals put to death, sacrificed, and then cut in half. And you'd put half the animals here and half of them here. Like the right legs on this side and the left legs on that side. I mean, this is a gruesome idea. And it's supposed to be gruesome. Because what would happen is they'd both walk in between. And the subtext was, if I break this covenant, this agreement, this is what will happen to me. Chopped in half. Nobody wants to get chopped in half. It's very hard to survive such a thing. And yet, when God makes that covenant with Abraham... He says, Abraham, you stand back and watch. I will pass between the two halves. This will be on me. I will be your God. I will be your salvation. 
And, and because of this, he can use anyone or anything, including this very idea that was popular in that age and popular in the New Testament age and popular now, that there is no real spiritual truth to hang on to. And the rise of religious pluralism and relativism, yeah, it shouldn't be celebrated. It's, it's antithetical to the gospel. It, it, it's completely incompatible with the teachings of Christ. But we should never despair and become fatalistic hand-wringers or, or angry, ranting culture warriors in light of this kind of change, this kind of movement. We've seen what God did with Persian kings who were pragmatic pluralists. We've seen what God did through the apostles in the Roman world where every God but Christ had a place at the table. In fact, I want you to be optimistic about the future of the church even in the midst of a culture that is drifting away from it. Be optimistic because we've read the end and we know Jesus wins. And so with the, the last few minutes here today, I want to tell you five ways in which I believe the religious pluralism of our day is actually not a problem, but an opportunity for the church to grab onto and to use to glorify God. In, in the very same way that it was used to glorify God in the days of Ezra. First, it proves that the secularization theories were all false. There was always this kind of conventional wisdom, really going back to the 18th century, that the more advanced we got, the more science we knew, the more access, the more people who can get their hands on an iPhone and a broadband connection and vaccines and medical technology, the less religion there will be. People will say, oh, I don't need that, God. I've got this stuff. Hasn't been the case. Not in the slightest. People are as religious as ever, and in many places more religious than ever. The religion itself may have changed, but people have not become strictly secular. That is an outlier, a very small minority position. And Paul, when he walked around Athens and saw that they had a God for everything, and even a, an altar to the unknown God, he used that broad, pluralistic religion to bring the gospel to bear on Mars Hill. He said, I, I see that in all ways you are religious. Let's talk about these gods. Let's talk about this this." in-programmed, hardwired thing that you have where you have to reach out and touch the divine. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about that God that you have an unknown altar for. This God that you worship in ignorance. I will tell you about him so that you can worship him in knowledge and know him for real. And we can do that as well. Secondly, people are less likely to take their religious identity for granted in the midst of our current religious pragmatic pluralism. Personal conviction and a definitive decision is now a necessity if someone is going to follow Jesus. There was a time, a time that many of us remember, when a city the size of Lansing would have a tiny percentage of people claiming no religion or identifying as anything but Christian. Pretty much everyone had, quote-unquote, their church, even if they didn't actually go. It was, it was assumed we're all good Christians here. Even if we're not, we, we are. That's the general assumption. Now it's not assumed, which is good. We can actually bring the gospel to our neighbors as something unusual and revolutionary and kind of out there, just as the New Testament church did. And we can show the world that it means something to us. 
Because for the first time in centuries, Western Christians are living in a setting where it does mean something and might even cost something to say, yes, I'm a Christian. And I don't mean that in a reinvented, deconstructed, nothing means anything, funny play kind of way, but rather in the original sense of the words. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father or enter the kingdom apart from him. Thirdly, today's religious pluralism makes us identify the core of our faith, to identify the things that we must have and will never compromise. This is something that most every faith can do. In Judaism, it's easy to identify the heart, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. In Islam, it's what they call the Shahada. Their creed, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. That is what they, they will not bend on. They will go to the wall for that. That's the core, that's the center. How would you identify the heart and soul of your faith? This also allows us to identify sort of what is less central. What are things around the periphery, secondary, tertiary issues? which we might not demand everyone fall in line regarding those things. And where are you willing to link arms with people who differ from you on secondary matters if their faith has the same core, the same heart as yours? It's ironic that in reacting against a pragmatic pluralism that would affirm all religions, Christians are learning to put aside some of their differences and cooperate and link arms together to advance the cause of Christ. Ironic, but awesome. If the world sees that there is indeed one Lord, one faith, one baptism, that Jesus has one bride, not a harem, that is good for our witness. Adversity has this effect and always has. From time to time, I understand the Communist Party and the USSR conducted campaigns to propagate their, quote, scientific atheism. And on one such occasion, all the inhabitants of a village, including the local Orthodox priest, had to assemble in front of the church to listen to an hour-long lecture about the illusions of religion. Then the commissar made what he thought might be a generous gesture, and said that the priest had five minutes for rebuttal if he wanted to speak to his people. The priest came forward and simply said, I don't need five minutes, turned to the assembled villagers and said, Christ is risen. And they all replied with the proper formula, he is risen indeed. The priest then returns to his place in the congregation. Just like we've seen so far in the book of Ezra, Opposition makes us recenter on what is most important to us and living in the midst under the reign of this uh, pragmatic religious pluralism, which the culture will enforce through any variety of means, has the same effect. Fourthly, the current religious pluralism challenges us to know our faith. That is what happens there in Ezra. 
right? They, they're surrounded now suddenly, not just outside of the land, but even inside of the land by people who are adherents to other faiths, to many faiths, by people who don't understand much about the worship of this God, Yahweh. He is, in their minds, at best, just one amongst many gods. And so they're going to have to know about him if they're going to be able to engage the people living around them. We see some references to that that faith tradition that, that would require some knowledge here in verse 28, even when Artie uses the phrase, God of our fathers. This immediately reminds them of the covenant made with Abraham. Remember the passing between the, the two halves of the animals, uh, reminding them that by grace, God would make them his people and bless them and protect them and through them bless the whole world. What's more, being surrounded by people who are are Muslim or Sikh or Mormon or agnostic and are smart and capable and kind is going to bring the good kind of doubt to the surface. I say the good kind of doubt, meaning the kind that doesn't come to stay and, and lead to unbelief, but rather the kind that drives someone with true faith deeper into the word to find answers. The kind that makes us ask the hard questions and trust God to sufficiently be able to address them. Finally, fifthly, when God works through a remnant, it shines the spotlight all the more on Jesus. We're not beginning some dark age of Christianity in the West because churches are shrinking. We are beginning to focus more of the light on Jesus Christ. This happens throughout the scriptures. Think about it. Gideon, he's whittled down from a massive army to just a handful. David, he's the smallest of all of his brothers. In fact, when it's time to to pick which of the brothers is king, Jesse doesn't even call him in. He leaves him out tending the flocks. It's shepherds who are called to come and bear witness to the birth of Christ, even though they were thought of as persona non grata in the first century in the Middle East. And and Nazareth is chosen, least among every city in all of uh, Galilee and Judea. Nazareth is chosen as uh, the hometown of the Messiah. It's, It's like how you can't see your breath when it's warm out, right? But you go outside and it's cold and now suddenly you see it. When there are fewer people and it is not easy going, Suddenly, we see what we could not see before, and we have to acknowledge at every turn that it is God who is making anything good in our midst happen. It's not us. It's him. And the church had been inside for a long time, and now we are kind of being pushed outside. Finally, a warning here as we read and apply a text like this. A passage like this reminds us how important it is that we rightly divide the word of truth. We see in this passage God's word being reestablished, which is something we long for, but we need to remember how to apply it. And to do that, we have to rightly divide between the old covenant and the church age in which we live today. The old covenant was made with a particular people, Israel, for a particular time, in a particular place, geographically. And as we look for renewal and revival, we don't look for a return of that. We would not want to see legislation of our faith in our world today. Punishment for people who don't believe or live like we do. 
In fact, as Baptists, this has been our defining tension from the very beginning, that you don't need to be pluralistic in your theology to be kind and merciful in the way that you love your neighbor and to accept that there are going to be people around us who don't believe and live the way that we do and that the way to, to evangelize such people is not with a heavy hand but with a loving heart. The approach here is not a tax-exempt approach. I do greatly uh, treasure the fact that our, in our land, churches are tax-exempt, and that is a great blessing. I don't know how much longer it will last, but we are thankful that it is the case now. But if it were to reverse tomorrow, it wouldn't be anything new. Jesus paid taxes. He paid everything, even to the point of the temple tax where he had the disciples go and catch the fish and the coin was in its mouth and all this. Even his few possessions in the world. His one tunic was given over, not as a payment of taxes, but taken off his body by a Roman soldier and gambled for on Good Friday. He paid it all. And that is the example set for us. There's a word used in verse 28, chesed, covenant loyalty, steadfast love, gracious faithfulness, however it is translated. I think the King James either uses mercy or loving kindness mashed together as one word. The God who passed by himself through the midst of the slain animals also went by himself up that hill and onto the cross to bear the curse of all our sins. Blessings fall on us because the curses fell on Christ. That's the fulfillment here. That's the good news we proclaim. And we proclaim it boldly, knowing that the King of Kings is yet on the throne. We proclaim the gospel, as the apostle says, in season and out of season. For us, it's always good news season. Even in the midst of religious pluralism or anti-biblical bias or whatever else we encounter in the world today. Whatever may come our way, we will trust our God like Ezra did to move his mighty hand and glorify his holy name through a faithful remnant.